want to lead us in prayer in a moment. First, a reminder, we, we emailed to our members and we put on our blog a, I think it's a helpful statement, a clear statement regarding the death of George Floyd and, and just more broadly than that. It reads as follows the first couple paragraphs. As churches committed to the equality and dignity of all people, we grieve the death of George Floyd, and we do. While all must grieve, we understand that in the hearts of our fellow citizens of color, incidents like these connect to a long history of unequal justice in our country, going back to the grievous Jim Crow and slavery eras. The images and information we have available to us in this case are horrific and remind us that there is much work to be done to ensure that there is not even a hint of racial inequity in the distribution of justice in our country. We sent that to because we want you to know how as pastors we view these events. Racism is a sin. It's just good to acknowledge that, be very forthright to say racism, all racism is a sin. It's a denial of the image of God and man, a denial that we are made equal in his image and likeness. And yet, and yet, as civil rights leader John Perkins put it, there is no institution more equipped and capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. I find that hope-giving, because we who are in Christ, we can demonstrate a different model. We can show a different hope in our reconciliation to God and to each other. So pray with me if you would from the words of Romans chapter 15. Let's pray. In Romans 15 we read, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony, such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, welcome one another. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Father, we pray in light of that passage for ourselves, our community, our country, and our world. We ask you, God of endurance and God of encouragement, grant that to us to live in such harmony with one another that one day, one day, people around this world, from every tribe, language, people, nation, will with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so help us to welcome one another as you have welcomed us in Christ. We thank you that you overcame this world through suffering and through rejection and through injustice. And you work through these painful realities. We pray for heart transformation wherever heart transformation is needed. We ask you to do that. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would align our hearts with your heart for the foreigner, your heart for the widow, your heart for the poor and the orphan, 
and the oppressed. We pray for your justice to be expressed, your love to be expressed, and your righteousness to be expressed in our society and in our own lives. And we ask you that the good news of Jesus Christ would bring comfort right now to those who are mourning. That the good news of Jesus Christ would bring healing where there are broken relationships, unreconciled people and peoples. The good news of Jesus Christ would bring hope to all of us this morning. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you again for coming. A few other things we mentioned in that email and that blog post, a few things we'd encourage you to do. And the first was listen. Listen to God in His Word. Listen to God, what He says about justice and the things we just prayed about. And listen to the cries for racial justice. A posture of humility, friends. A posture of humility seeks to listen and learn. So let us do so. And secondly, pray like we just did. Pray for heart transformation. Everywhere heart transformation is needed. And third, we mentioned influence your world and your own spheres of influence, your own opportunities. Let us speak out righteously against injustice, against the sin of racism. Let us act righteously as well. We mentioned in that email our ministry partner, Bridge of Hope, who is a great means of God's care, God's love, God's mercy to the hurting, the less privileged, the immigrant in our community. You can see Dan Arthur, Eric Lemkuel. If you want to get involved there, we, we encourage you to do so. It's a great place to begin to make an immediate difference in our community. So let's keep listening together, praying together, and influencing our world with the good news of Jesus Christ together. Amen? Amen. See, when we're talking online, online services, we can't hear you. So do me that favor and just... Give me the amens today, because it's so good to be together, and you just don't want to listen to me. So, Amen. thank you, Matthew, yeah, thank you. All right, if you would, please turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, like I mentioned, there are sermon fill-in-the-blanks if you want one of those. We're going to spend these 12 weeks here in the park preaching through most of the first half of John's Gospel. We won't cover every single verse, but most of the first half of John's Gospel. I think it's very appropriate we do so. There are real challenges in our world. But the Gospel of John focuses us on our hope in Christ, reminds us of our unity in Christ, and reminds us of the good news we share with those around us, the good news of Jesus Christ. So please follow along as Sung reads from John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? 
My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and, many, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Thank you. So this morning we tag along with Jesus and a few of his disciples to a wedding. I love going to weddings. This wedding, Jesus' mother Mary is there, and in verse 3 she says to Jesus, they have no wine. They have to realize that in this culture weddings were a very big deal. The celebration could last an entire week, and so the catering involved, the details of involved of a, of a celebration for an entire week were no small thing. And to run out of wine was a major social embarrassment. I mean, you would never live this down. You'd be saying to your friend, man, do you remember when we ran out of wine at your wedding? I bet your mother-in-law wanted to kill you that day. Mary, perhaps trying to be helpful, she seems hopeful that Jesus will do something about this situation. But Jesus responds, did you notice, in what seems like a slightly peculiar manner in verse 4. He says, woman, he didn't say, hi mom or hi mother, it's woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now he's not being rude, but he's not being entirely warm either. It's a mild rebuke. He's saying, you can't put a claim on me as my mother. He's saying, I know you mean well, but my ministry cannot just revolve around our family ties. You see, Jesus won't act because Mary is his mother, but he will act for his own purposes. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Big, huge water jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said, verse 7, to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim, the very top. It's a lot of water. Verse 8, he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast tastes this water, now become wine, and he can't believe it. It's outstanding 
wine. You didn't normally do this. So and so he calls over to the bridegroom. He says, hey, man, we've been drinking the cheap Kentucky table wine, and now you bring out the exquisite French vintage. This is amazing. And the bridegroom, it appears, doesn't say anything. He didn't plan well, perhaps, isn't paying attention, perhaps, and now he gets all the credit for bringing out the good wine. There's something about God's grace in that picture, isn't there? Well, John simply tells us of this in verse 9. The water now become wine. That's all he says. The water now become wine. I, I was a chemistry major in college for a brief period of time until it got too difficult for me. But I remember this much, that a water molecule is H2O, right? Two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom makes a water molecule. Now wine has other stuff in it, I know that much, besides <laughs> simply hydrogen and oxygen. And I know to make wine, you've got to rearrange those atoms into new formations and new molecules. And so realize this, just by, just by thinking it, just by willing it, not even going over and touching the water jars, not adding anything to them whatsoever, just willing it to be. Jesus is rearranging atoms every which way to make this water become wine. Now who can do that? Well, in John chapter 1, he's already told us who can do that, hasn't he? In John chapter 1, which we've looked at in the past, Jesus is described as the Word. And we're told the Word was with God. And make no mistake, the Word was God and is God. And then it says the divine Word became flesh, took on humanity. God himself walking the earth. That's who's turning this water into wine. You, you may know the name John Muir. He was an explorer in the western part of this continent. Spent a lot of time in Yosemite. There's a story I like that's told about John Muir. That he had a, a friend who had a cabin in the Sierras. And he went there one December. And a fierce storm rolled in and Muir decided to leave the comfort and safety of the cabin, went out, climbed a tall hill, found a humongous Douglas fir tree, scrambled to the top of the Douglas fir tree during this storm and hung on for dear life, rocking back and forth in this storm because, as one author says, he wanted a creator confrontation. He wanted some kind of experience of the Creator's creation experiencing that storm. John chapter 2 is a Creator confrontation. Because only, only the Creator turns water into wine. But we should ask, why is this Creator confrontation here in John chapter 2. Why is this recorded for us? What are we supposed to learn about the Creator come in the flesh from this scene and this miracle? Well, a key verse to clue us in is in verse 11. If you'll notice verse 11, it says, This, the first of His signs. The first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana, in Galilee, 
and manifested his glory, showed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John is explaining that this miracle is here not just as some raw demonstration of power. It's not Jesus saying, I know what I'll do. I'll put all the local vineyards out of business. No, it's making a statement about who he is. It's a sign showing his glory. Think about what a sign is for. A sign signifies something. A sign points to something else. You see sometimes individuals on the street corners, right? And they've got those big arrows, those big arrow signs, and they can do amazing things. Some of them flip them up in the air and twirl them behind their back. Have you seen that? And what are they doing? They're getting their attention with this big arrow to point away from themselves to some business down the street. John is saying that's what this is doing in your Bible. It's a big arrow to point you to the glory of Jesus Christ. That you learn about the Creator come in the flesh. It's a big arrow pointing, I think, to His glory in two particular ways. The glory of, you might say, His purification. And the glory of His consummation. Kids, if you're taking notes, just think of being made clean and being made new. If you're filling in the blanks. Being made clean and being made new. Think first with me about the glory of His purification. Christ making us clean, you might say. Look back to verse 4. Jesus said to Mary, My hour has not yet come. In John's Gospel, what Jesus means by my hour is the hour of His cross. He says in John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour! But for this purpose I have come to this hour, the hour of His death there in context. Or John 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour, His hour had come to depart out of this world. See, the hour is the hour of Jesus' coming sacrifice, dying on a Roman cross for the sins of all who will believe. So, from verse 4, the shadow of the cross is cast over this scene. And with that shadow in mind, remember what verse 6 told us. The purpose of the water that Jesus had the servants use. Verse 6 says, they are six stone water jars... For the Jewish rites of purification, big jars for rituals of purification, rituals that could never truly purify, could they? They'd have to do it again and again and again, day after day, meal after meal. Purification could never truly be accomplished in some lasting way. And Jesus is hinting at what those jars pointed toward, what those jars attempted to do, He would fulfill and bring to pass. It illustrates how the old rituals attempting purification would be replaced and fulfilled by the one who achieved purification on the cross. That begs the question, though, why do we need to be purified? I mean, so often we don't see that need, do we? And so we talk about these things and they become rote to us, overly familiar to us. I think we begin to look at our own lives through our own eyes, and we evaluate by our own standards. 
Or we might say, you know, I'm better than him at least, or better than her at least. I must be okay with God. We forget to look at our lives through God's eyes and evaluate with God's standards. A God who is infinitely pure, perfectly holy. The prophet tells us he cannot stand to look upon evil. And so, friends, just one sin, just one sinful act, just one sinful thought, just one wayward motivation, and, and we are defiled before a God of infinite holiness. And if you see that, if you realize that, then this Creator come in the flesh to bring purification for you will be very sweet and very glorious. You will rejoice in the words of the hymn writer who said of a fountain, a fountain where sinners plunge beneath that flood and lose all their guilty stains. That's what he's holding out to you. We lose all our guilty stains through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you believed on Jesus like that? John tells us at the end of this book that these signs are here to breed faith in our hearts. That believing on Jesus, we would have life in His name. That's what He's holding out to you and me. Life in His name. Because He has obeyed in your place, died in your place, and risen in your place. And so He says to all of us, Come to me, you who are dirty and defiled in your sin. Come to me, you who are unable to make yourself clean. Come to me believing, and I will purify you once and for all. And so I urge you, turn to Christ believing. Trust in His life, death, and resurrection. And if you've done that already, as it were, if you are a Christian, if you have believed, remember that you live the Christian life repenting and believing. That, that's how you live the Christian life. You live the Christian life turning and trusting to Christ. You live the Christian life as a race of repentance, I believe Martin Luther said. And you live the Christian life always relying on Jesus Christ, never removing your need for Jesus before God. You always live the Christian life turning and trusting in Him. So do this morning, do what David Dixon said, as he lay dying in 1662, he said, quote, I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad deeds and cast them in a heap before the Lord and fled from both and taken myself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, he says, I have sweet peace. So take all your good deeds. They matter. They're important, but they can't make you pure before God. Take all your good deeds, any attempt at improving on what Christ has done. Gather in a heap. Take all your bad deeds, the things you came here with, weighing on your conscience, the, the sins of anger in a sinful way, the, the sins of coveting, of lust, of, of self-righteousness, of pride. You fill in the blank. Gather all of those things and cast them in the same heap and flee from both, the David, David Dixon said, and take yourself to Jesus Christ who purifies through his life, death, and resurrection. And in him, friends, you will have sweet peace. That's the glory of his purification that, that is pointed toward here through the glory of his cross. 
But there is also here what I would call the glory of his consummation. The fact that Jesus Christ makes all things new. Tra track with me here. This is a rather humble scene in some ways. I mean, it's an amazing miracle, but it points forward to something even more glorious in a way. It, it's kind of like this. Fifteen years ago, this past April, just fifteen years ago, Jawad Karim posted an 18-second video entitled, Me at the Zoo. It's 18 seconds of this individual's face describing his uneventful time at the zoo. It's a very simple, kind of unimpressive video, to be honest with you. But do you know what that was the start of? Anybody know? Now, somebody got it at 8.30, so I, I'm going to have to wait. <laughs> that was the start of YouTube. Kareem and his co-founders sold that platform one year later to Google for $1.65 billion, with a B, dollars. Something so simple, honestly unimpressive, pointed forward to something far more glorious, you might say, this $1.65 billion sale. This scene is kind of like that. It takes place in a small, insignificant town called Cana. It's the wedding of an anonymous couple. We don't know their names. And even the miracle Jesus performs is done kind of undercover, isn't it? It doesn't appear the master of the feast knows what's going on. Perhaps the bridegroom never figured it out. I don't know where that wine came from. The servants knew. Jesus' disciples believed. It's almost undercover in a way. And yet Jesus' actions at this ordinary wedding 2,000 years ago take it and make it point forward to something far more glorious than $1.65 billion. Jesus is giving us a foretaste of the age to come. An age in the prophet of the, which the prophet Amos said, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, Amos chapter 9. An, a, an age in which Amos said that the, uh, the reapers will not be able to keep up with those who are doing the plowing. There will be so much abundance, this overwhelming abundance. Those taking in the harvest can't take it all in. It's the age of the Messiah. As Jesus here makes over 100 gallons of wine in an instance. As scholar D.A. Carson comments, quote, the sheer quantity of water turned to wine, the sheer quantity becomes symbolic of the lavish provision of the new age. This wedding in John 2 is like an acted out parable, a living illustration of the glorious future he's bringing about through his cross, resurrection, ascension, and return. At his last supper, as he passed the cup of wine and he said, drink from it, this is the new covenant in my blood. In Mark and Matthew's Gospels, Jesus then comments, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. That's what's happening here. He's pointing forward to that day 
when he drinks it new in the kingdom of God, that great wedding feast to come, when he's gathered with all of his people, he has purchased people from every tribe, language, culture, nation, the most diverse group ever assembled in the most profound unity ever experienced, perfect racial harmony, as all things are fully and finally made new. That's what's being pointed forward toward here. A day when every problem, every pain, every injustice, every heartache is taken away. A day when there's no more sickness, pain, or death. A day when God himself wipes every tear away from his people's eyes. Do you need that hope today? You do. Where do you need it? Where do you need that hope right now? This lavish provision points forward to that day when all things are made new and the kingdom comes in fullness. Where do you need that hope right now? For yourself? Our community? Our world? Maybe you came here weighed down. We're feeling hopeless. I've been weighed down by the recent events. Maybe you feel the same. Wherever you need that hope right now, see that coming day. See that coming day to give you hope for today. Look to that day through the lens of this scene. Look to that day of the coming messianic age, that age of amazing provision when all things are made new. Look to that day and find hope for your life right now. That day when all wrongs are made right, when every injustice is met with perfect justice, when all wants and needs and lacks are met with amazing abundance. Friends, look to that day and find hope right now. Hope for purification from all our sins. Hope of that coming consummation when all things are made new. Let's pray in light of that, because Jesus Christ is God who has come to purify His people and make all things new. So let's bring our hearts to the Lord. He's come to purify His people and make all things new. Would you, even now, just perhaps close your eyes for the purpose of concentration? And ask yourself where you need this hope. It might be the hope of purification. It might be the hope of bringing your sins to the one who died for them and rose. Turning from going your own way, repenting and believing, trusting only in Christ to save you. Say to him, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I turn from them. Thank you for dying. I believe you died to take away the sins of all who believe. Please come into my life and change me. You can pray that to him right now. Or maybe for you it's the hope of consummation. That one day all things will be fully and finally made new. Bring that heavy heart to him this moment.
Lord, we do. We thank you. Though rites of purification could not purify, your blood and righteousness do. We praise you for that, that we stand before you, we who believe clean and purified. We thank you as well for a coming age where there is no lack, nor pain, nor hardship, sickness or death, when all things are made fully and finally new, would you put this hope into our hearts right now that we would leave here hoping in you afresh. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.